Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. You're listening to Justice, a podcast series exploring all aspects of the criminal justice system with me, prison philanthropist and founder of One Small Thing, Edwina Grosvenor. In the third and final podcast of our procedural justice mini-series, I'm extremely pleased to welcome Peter Dawson. Peter Dawson is the director of the Prison Reform Trust and a former prison governor. Listen as Peter shares what procedural justice means to him in a prison context and how the notion of justice runs through the entire system. My name is Peter Dawson. I'm director at the Prison Reform Trust. And Peter, today we are going to be talking about procedural justice. So... That might sound a bit jargony to some people. So can you um, do your best at explaining what exactly that is and why we should care about it? Yeah, well, in the the prison context, I think procedural justice can be translated as fairness. Um, And, I mean, for me personally, uh, this journey started in the very first job I did in the prison service back in the late 1980s, where I had policy responsibility for adjudication. So that's the internal disciplinary process where prisoners break rules in the prison um, and uh, the, the, the governor sits in judgment on them. Um, and it really came to prominence because after the strange ways and other riots that occurred in 1990, Lord Wolfe uh, wrote his report about those riots. And I'm sure everyone was expecting a report about security measures and uh, you know, how the prisons responded to disorder, which they got. But the thing which he really picked out as being crucial in the causation of the riots and for the future of the prison service was the idea that prisons must be places of justice. So you're sent there from a system of justice and that fairness in how prisons run um, wasn't, wasn't as important as it needed to be in the thinking of people who ran and who worked in prisons. And, you know, that, that really has um, been a guiding light for me ever since. Um, we, we used to do training in internal dis- disciplinary procedures, which talked about the rules of natural justice, which I guess is just a previous generation's um, language for the same sort of thing. But it's, it, it's about how decisions are taken as well as the decisions themselves. And I guess all of us, uh, all of us will have experience of uh, getting bad news or getting our just desserts for something. And the way in which it has done has a really big impact on whether we can accept that decision, that outcome and how we respond to it. Okay. So it sounds like it's got a lot to do also with emotional intelligence on the person who's sort of handing out or in control of that procedural justice. So if you give me a prison example as a sort of ex-governor doing adjudication, so you know, the judge hands out the sentence, you get sent to prison, say it's a two-year sentence you have to serve, but then you're on the wing 
and you're causing a bit of a nuisance. Yeah, well, I mean, the, the, um, the, the, the apocryphal tale of what prison discipline used to be like, um, not long before I became a governor, of course, was that, you know, the governor who said to a prisoner, um, you know, if, if the chief officer tells you how long ago it was, if the chief officer tells me that you've been riding a motorbike down the landing, my only question to him will be uh, whether you were insured to ride the motorbike. So the, the, the starting assumption was that if you found yourself up in front of the governor, you were guilty. And the only issue was how severely you were going to be punished. And I mean, I always felt that doing adjudications, that the, the first and most obvious thing is you've got to start with an open mind. Um, and that open mind means accepting that sometimes staff tell you lies and sometimes prisoners tell you lies and sometimes people just didn't see or don't remember what happened. And anybody who's worked on anything to do with evidence in trials will know that um, people's perceptions of what happened can be completely different, um, but both completely true from their perspective. So you've got to have an open mind. If you've got an open mind, you've really got to listen to what people say. You've got to give people the chance to ask questions. Um, and and, and you, have to, you have to try and put yourself in the shoes of the person who is in front of you as well. Um, and that will be partly, you know, they might be nervous, they might be defensive, they might have completely rotten experiences behind them of how they are dealt with, so very low expectations. And also, and we know this in prisons, in all sorts of circumstances, what's actually going on may be the last thing that they're about to tell you. Um, so, you know, very commonly, I've got a colleague who did a long study about prisoners who end up in segregation units. Very commonly now, people are committing offences, sometimes quite serious offences, assaulting staff because they want to get to segregation because they're scared of being on the wing. So, so what you've got in front of you is someone who's um, assaulted a member of staff and that's serious and you have to respond to it. But what you've also got in front of you is someone who's scared to go back. And that, that's the issue you're going to have to solve, ultimately, if you don't want it to happen again. And I imagine the severity of the punishment when a prisoner comes into the adjudication room, sits down in front of the governor, you know, has a go at trying to explain what went on. Does the severity of the punishment have anything to do with the context with, within which it all sits, i.e., you know, that person might not have been able to have a shower for four days for whatever reason, or, you know, the food can be disgusting, or, you know, I'm not saying yeah. that any of that is um, an excuse for violence, of course, but sometimes you sort of think, my God, if I was in some of the situations where people have been adjudicated, you know, you can kind of understand where bad behaviour sometimes comes from, and the system isn't always brilliant at <laughs> reducing that always. No, um, punishment was always much, much the hardest part of adjudications. So that the training was almost all about how you reach your decision. And I think most governors would say that most of the time they get to decisions that they feel pretty confident about. Um, but the really hard bit is what, what do you do then? Um, and that's, you know, it's partly about the mitigation. That can be the sorts of things that you just spoke about, you know, that it's... Um, it's a build-up of pressure and it's someone letting off steam. A member of staff just happened to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. But also, of course, it's, you know, what, what prisons are full of people for whom punishment doesn't work, you know, kind of by definition. Um, 
So you know once you get to the punishment bit that you're kind of on a losing wicket. You're doing something that in the past hasn't made any difference and may have done a lot of harm. Um, you also have such an incredible variety of the experience of prisoners coming into that. So, you know, most obviously, the, 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 the lifer who comes in, the most severe punishment available within the prison disciplinary system for years was that you could require a person to serve added days in prison or loss of remission in the very old days. Well, that doesn't apply to lifers. Um, saying to someone uh, that there is a consequence, but it's years hence, someone serving a very long sentence, um, you know, it, it's meaningless. Uh, rule number one, uh, whether it's, you know, dealing with people in prison or parenting or anything where you are uh, exacting retribution is that the that the retribution has to come swiftly and logically from what's happened. And the longer the delay between the offence and the punishment, the less effective it is. And a delay between handing out the punishment and it being implemented means that it can often just generate fair unfairness in itself. You end up thinking, well, I can't actually remember what it is that I'm being punished for. It was so long ago. Right. So getting the punishment right is really, really complicated. And, of course, it's also complicated by the fact that you've got a member of staff sitting there as well. Um, and staff invest a great deal uh, in that process for their authority with prisoners. So um, it's, you know, it's a difficult thing to find a prisoner not guilty, um, which you have to do sometimes, and, and you find out about staff who don't tell the truth through that process. But also sometimes if you're going to show mercy, um, that can be difficult too because staff feel that, you know, as victims of crime will sometimes feel that they're not getting, not getting the right outcome. But it's, it's where the governor, one of the, one of the key places, I think, where the governor establishes what their role in the prison really is. And it's not to be on anybody's side. It's not to be on prisoner's side or staff's side, though everybody wants to put you in one of those two yeah. pigeonholes. Yeah, I bet. Um, you've, you've, got to try, you've got to go down the middle. And we're talking in the prison context, obviously, because we're sort of prison-y type people. Um, but I guess this runs through the police. It runs through the court system, um, probably schools, as you said, sort of parenting. So is that right, that sort of procedural justice actually isn't just about the confines of the criminal justice system or a prison? No, well, it's certainly not. Um, and, and I mean, I know we're talking about procedural justice. The, the more I think about it, the more I just think about justice. So, uh, you know, everybody's really conscious at the moment uh, with Black Lives Matter about mm. discrimination and where that's come from. And for me, much the most convincing explanation of that is what David Lammy set out. And it's it's an incremental process. So it's a whole series of decisions that, that go against you. Um, and, you know, often quite marginal decisions, but they always seem to go against you if you're black. Right. Um, and, and the cumulative effect of that is that you start expecting them always to go against you. And the cumulative effect is that you end up with a criminal record in prison and a, a worldview which completely justifiably on the evidence of your life is that you're always going to come out the wrong side of those marginal decisions. So I, I think you know, one of the mistakes we've made actually is relying on procedure to deliver justice. Um, I mean, another example, think about recruitment processes where for very good reason, recruitment processes have tried to take out uh, elements which could lead to bias. So it might be 
taking out a person's gender or age or race from the application form, um, trying to ask a series of identical questions to every candidate, all of those procedural things that we're familiar with designed to, to make things fairer. But if you don't also get the right decision, so if you have all of those procedural safeguards, but you're still on marginal decisions, always finding against the person who's black or finding against the woman uh, who's of childbearing age or finding against the person who's just a bit younger than you expected for that post, you're still producing un unfairness. So I, I, think, I think good procedures are part of it, but actually good judgment is what really produces fairness. And, and that then comes back to where we started. It's about really listening to, to people, really showing some empathy, being prepared to try and understand what's gone on in the run up to issues, what may be happening that you haven't yet understood, um, and not just dealing with the thing that happens to be most obvious in front of you at the time. Yeah. I was um, talking to someone the other day about, um, and again, using a, an example that's unrelated to the criminal justice system, within COVID and people having to be made redundant, um, someone, who, uh, someone who I know had been made redundant, and I was asking him how he felt, and he said, Do you know what? It was just done so nicely and with such compassion that, um, you know, it's still obviously a bit of a blow. But I was really, um, when I was thinking about procedural justice, that really sprung to mind because actually going back to what we were talking about, it's really about delivering sometimes some pretty bad news, but it can be done in a compassionate, empathetic way, which really softens the blow, not only for people you know, emotionally, but sometimes um, in order to not allow things in a prison context to end up in a violent situation. I, I think that's right. I mean, I think compassion is crucial. I think humility is crucial, actually. I mean, there is a phrase, this is, you know, you hear a lot in prisons, but crikey, you hear it um, all over the world, you know, there but for the grace of God go I, um, that we, we all make mistakes. Um, and sometimes, we get away with it, and sometimes the mistake turns not to have turns out not to have very serious consequences. But um, but that's lucky, um, and you know we make mistakes, which in context we probably should be deeply ashamed of. Um, but we've had a very fortunate existence, and our capacity to make serious mistakes is limited. So, you know, I think of mistakes that I've made, bringing up kids of which I'm you know hugely desperately ashamed. Um, and given my upbringing in a stable, loving family, there's kind of not much excuse for, you know, occasionally getting it so spectacularly wrong. Well, it's really important to know that about yourself. If you're dealing with someone whose life has been massively less fortunate mm. and has made what appears to be a much more egregious error, um, but actually in the context of their life, probably matches up a bit to some of the stupid things that you've done in your own life and and you know if you if you have that in your head I think it's you're more likely to take a good decision um, and certainly when it comes to that really difficult business of consequences you are more likely to get it right because you you want a consequence which gives somebody a way forward exactly um, and it you know if if I spent my whole life, basically, you know, in, in the business of punishing people, um, you know, being part of a system which exists to punish. Well, 
you can only come to terms with that, I think, if you feel that the punishment serves a purpose. And, you know, we know punishment doesn't deter. Uh, we know that uh, punishment always causes harm. So perhaps the one thing that we're looking for in punishment is the ability to draw a line and say, you have another go. Um, and if punishment doesn't achieve that, if you do it in a way which someone can never leave behind, then it's a completely sort of nihilistic, purposeless way of using your energy. And you sound like, um, how, remind me how many years you did in the prison system, in the prison service. Crikey. Well, as a governor, I did about 12, 13 years. Right. But um, I've been working in and out of prisons for 30. And you sound sometimes like there's a little element of regret in your voice about the difficulty of the role of a governor in that sort of, you know, the punishment role. How do you, how do you feel about that now, looking back on it? You know, well, it's, it, it's, it's an interesting question because, um, because I do think it's one of those professions where you need to reflect on where your authority comes from because you have this immense authority over the lives of other people um, and the safety, the care of other people. Um, you know, people died while I was governing a prison and, you know, you're in charge and you're accountable for that and you know i would never done the job before where the stakes were nearly that high and there aren't many jobs where that's true but one of the things i remember this was a training course actually the civil service put on not the prison service but we had a, a talk from a guy who had been uh in the falklands uh second in command for the uh colonel uh, green i think his name was who won a posthumous vc um and and he talked about where your authority comes from when you are issuing orders which may cause people to lose their life. Um, and I just remember being very struck by that. If, if you're going to do a job with that kind of authority where the stakes are so high, you, you have to examine yourself and know that you are prepared to be honest and prepared to take difficult decisions and to do your best. But to, to know that you are also going to have to cope with sometimes that not being good enough and sometimes that you took a poor decision because you were tired or lazy or didn't have the right information. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, I, I look back on governing as a massive privilege because there were so many opportunities to do good, to put together teams of people who did extraordinary things, really, um, meeting an awful lot of incredibly admirable prisoners coping with situations that I can't imagine I would ever be able to cope with. But of course, also moments where I know that I took decisions that that weren't good enough, and that there were lots of people whose experience of that prison was was way below what was acceptable and should have been acceptable. I mean, I was lucky. I ran a prison that was pretty sort of modern um, and reasonably well resourced. I think that the moral dilemma for governors now, but I'm sure this applies to hospital managers. Um, you know, to, to any number of professions where you are operating without the resources you really need to do the job properly. That moral dilemma is, is huge. Do you, do you stick around and try and make it better? Um, or do you say, actually, I, I can't tolerate being in charge of something that's so, so far below what I think is acceptable? 
Yeah. And did you feel sort of during that time that sort of when it came to the procedural justice that you were kind of had authority over within the prison, that you were able to do it in the way that you wanted and to be able to do it fairly, um, to provide voice to people, to provide transparency? Or did you kind of feel that the system actually doesn't necessarily allow for that? Oh, no, I was actually most of the time, yes. I think most of the time it was judgment and 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 deciding to do it right. Um, I mean, funnily enough, the often the biggest dilemmas for a governor are in disciplining their own staff. Um, and certainly the the judgment calls that kept me awake at night were all about staff disciplinary procedures, not prisoner. But it's exactly it's exactly the same set of principles. And you do have to fall back then on some of the procedural stuff. You need to be scrupulous about doing it fairly. Um, and, you know, there are lots of rules to follow in the prison service for both staff and prisoners. I guess with staff, actually, they're probably followed more carefully because there's a trade union representative, there are appeal procedures, there are employment tribunals. You know, I attended several employment tribunals as a governor, and that's a... Um, you know, that's a proper grilling about exactly how you come to the decisions you've come to. But but you you rely on that stuff because you if you do that scrupulously and well, it will direct you to the right things to be thinking about and make sure that people do have everything you mentioned, you know, voice and the opportunity to make their case. But but at the end of the day, you've got to go home and you've got to decide the following morning whether someone is keeping their livelihood or not. Um and that's that's massive. It's a, a huge, a huge decision. Terrible position to have to be in. But I guess as long as you are um, following those the procedural justice route and doing everything within your power, I guess it allows you at the end of the day to go. That was a terrible experience, but I did all that I could to make it less of a blow. Yeah. Yes. And the the procedural justice helps with that. But then you also want to know you've made the right decision because. In a prison, and again, this is not unique to prison. This will be any workplace. Anybody managing other people will know what this feels like. If you if you don't deal effectively with the people who shouldn't be in the job, you're doing a real disservice to the people who are trying to do it well. Um, no, no, nobody thanks you for protecting a corrupt or an idle uh, member of staff. So, so you have to get it right, and that's about that's about really sort of clear thinking and sometimes about a bit of courage because you know you might be sitting in judgment on someone who's very popular um you know for heaven's sake you might be sitting in judgment for someone where you know the consequences of losing their job are are huge mm. um but and you might be sitting in judgment on someone particularly with staff where you know the reason that they perform poorly is you know it could be um it could be alcoholism it could be things which uh, you know, they're really struggling with, but you've got the safety of prisoners to consider and you've got to take that decision. Um, you, you've, you've got to, you do have to be able to go to sleep in the evening and say, yeah, I did that. I did that thoroughly. I did that well. But also I think I think I got it right. Um, and that's a, uh, you know, that, that that's all about judgment. There's no procedure or manual in the world that will get you to that place every time. And when it comes to the court system, I was reflecting on this because if procedural justice is about um, fairness, I always think how unfair access to justice actually is. If you take someone in my position where I have access to good lawyers, 
um, because I have access to money, um, then that's great. You know, I can always feel quite confident about the fact that if I get myself into a pickle, which I've done in the past, you know, I sort of stand a fighting chance of getting myself out of it quickly. And I always, it, it really is a personal thing of mine that I feel very strongly how unfair it is, even if it's friends of mine or people I know, regardless of people who might, you know, end up in prison, you know, that access to justice is really only there for the powerful, the influential and the wealthy. And that really kind of disturbs me, actually. Yeah, well, it should. And it's, yeah. it, it's um, well, it's very it's salutary, isn't it? It's, if you sit at the back of a magistrate's court for a couple of hours, um, then you will see, you know, what is supposedly the finest justice system in the world. You know, not really all that impressive. So no. you have people standing in a dock now behind a glass screen very often who plainly don't understand what's going on. And they're looking at a room full of people, half of whom have their back to them, sometimes wearing funny clothes. Speaking, yeah, speaking a different language. Absolutely. Um, and and it's, a very, um, it's a very confusing process. I mean, I sit there and think I'm not quite sure what's going on. So we, we don't have a huge amount to be proud of. And, and you're right, the, the lack of advice and the fact that people who, even if they've got advice, may have real difficulties understanding what's going on. Um, I mean, we know, don't we, that uh, for people in prison, there are huge deficits in terms of speech and language. Um, there's all sorts of uh, hidden disability as well as obvious disability. Um, and we spoke a little bit earlier about race and the impact of race. I just think you've got lots of people going into court who are starting from the assumption that the system's not going to treat them fairly and, and then then the system has to it has to do something different it's got to show that it's um that, that, that it's that it's determined to do something different and i don't think we've got there and what's happened on legal aid and about rapid justice I mean, a huge numbers of people are going to prison without probation service preparing a report about what what the consequences of that will be um you know we've got mothers being sent to prison where we the court doesn't know whether they've got children or not. Um, and again, you know, back to the issue of the most difficult bit in any judicial process is deciding the punishment rather than the verdict. Um, it might not be relevant to whether someone committed the crime that they've got kids, but you know, it's got to be relevant whether you send them to prison or not. Um, so I, you know, I, I agree, Edwina. I think um, I think we have a lot to be ashamed of, actually, and it is a you know, it's a massive divide based on money. Yeah. And when I was looking up um, the sort of definition of procedural justice, I guess, um, it says the fairness in the process of resolving disputes. And then it goes on to say that there are four pillars. And I'll just run through them quickly, because um, then when you think about our justice system in this country that's hailed so great, uh, it's interesting to think about whether you think this is true, um, sort of talking particularly to our listeners. So the four pillars of procedural justice, it says, number one, being fair in processes. Number two, being transparent in actions. Number three, providing opportunity for voice. And number four, being impartial in decision-making. Um, and certainly when I think about having sat in courtrooms and being present in many different areas of the justice system. Um, I, I'm not sure we rate particularly highly in any of those areas. Um, do you think I'm being sort of too critical? 
No, no, I think I think you're right. I mean, and and you can take it through from the the very first part of the justice process. So you know, a huge amount of attention at the moment on stop and search. Um, well, how can stop and search possibly be fair in process when it's so overwhelmingly directed against a a section of society and so overwhelmingly against a section of society whose skin is of a different colour? Um, mm. And that's not to say that you know the individual copper is trying to get it wrong, but when you look at it overall, it's our job, isn't it, as a society, to stand back and look at the overall process. You know that that can't that can't be fair when it has such a disproportionate impact. Um, and then what flows from that, um, of course, is any amount of disadvantage and you know cumulative disadvantage. Um, so it's not transparent in action. It's not one thing that happens and, you know, go on your way. You suddenly discover that you're on a police database and suddenly that database turns out to be relevant to things that happen maybe years down the line. You know, in prison, your security category may still now refer back to whether you're on a gang's database in a police force, um, which you may or may not know that you were on and may or may not result from a conviction. It could be from suspicion. So, um, and and your you know the opportunity for voice in that example. How on earth do you appeal against that? You know, how on earth do you find out that that's what's happened to you? That that's the reason behind what's happening? And we we cloak things in security and say, well, you can't. There's some things we can't tell you. Um, how on earth do you do you challenge that culture of secrecy? Hmm. And because I never like to wrap things up on a negative note, but um, I'm going to ask you whether you uh, know of any countries that do this particularly well or are there any examples we mm. can look to, um, you know, if listeners are particularly interested yeah. in this, you know, where can they go to see a bit more or good, good practice? My answer to this question, especially when it's about prisons, is always the same. I do know a country that does it really well, and it's this country. Um, and we, in some places we do it brilliantly. And there are examples. Um, I mean, everyone always mentions Grendon, but Grendon is a fascinating example of procedural justice. Yeah, that's the therapeutic prison in Aylesbury. That is exactly, exactly right. Um, with some of the most challenging people in the system, but everybody plays a part in how that runs as a prison. It is a genuine community where the community as a whole makes most of the rules. And if someone breaks the rules, then the community discusses and requires them to answer to the community about why they've done it and what should happen. But, you know, a much more prosaic example, um, I was visiting Cardiff Prison last year, um, and this adjudication is this internal disciplinary system, which, um, you know, at its worst is a prisoner pretty much silent um, down the far end of the room with a governor behind a desk, not looking up and scribbling and telling them that they're guilty. They'd changed it round, so it took place in a tiny little office but with comfortable chairs, with someone tape recording the proceedings so that it could be a conversation rather than a very stilted process where the governor was writing everything down and looking to solve problems, saying, what, you know, what led to this? How do we solve it? How do we make sure it doesn't happen again? Um, and that may sound a bit twee, and, um, but actually in a prison, that's what life is all about. You, if, if you don't solve problems, they come back. 
And dare I say it, um, with my organisation, One Small Thing, and sort of pioneering the sort of trauma-informed and trauma-responsive work, I mean, a lot of what we do is exactly about this. If someone is scared because they're about to go into an adjudication or someone is scared because they're about to go into a courtroom and have a judgment handed down to them, it can be made less scary. There's little things mm. that you can do that are really important that a lot of people just don't think about because they seem so small and they seem insignificant. But just those things like, as you say, remove the pen and paper, have a conversation, maybe ask someone if they want a cup of tea, ask them if they're okay before they start, are they comfortable? You know, all these things really matter. Absolutely right. And, and a real spirit of inquiry. I mean, one of the... Um... Uh, as part of my career was to spend a very, very short time, about three months, trying to be an officer on the landings at Brixton. Um, and I was I was very poor at it um, and it increased my respect for prison officers enormously. But um, there was I was only ever involved in sort of one incident during that three months where force was used. And um, it left me very, very confused because I thought that I'd be doing everything I possibly could to uh, help a prisoner um, and he ended up slamming the door in my face. And then I was even more confused because a whole group of staff piled in from behind me and restrained this prisoner. And I thought, why didn't they just close the door? And and the thing that I learned from both elements of that was that what's happening in front of you is probably not the most important thing. So I was being very friendly to the prisoner and trying to solve his problem, but all he wanted was to get down to the segregation unit to avoid a transfer and me being helpful was actually getting in the way of him doing that. All the members of staff who piled in from behind me wanted was his Christmas off because it was the middle of December and following the restraint, then he acquired an injury um, and he was off for Christmas. And the uh, oh, principal right. officer told me, he said, oh, yeah, middle of December, that's what happens most years. Um, so you just have to, oh, <laughs> you just have to know <laughs> that um, what's happening may not be all that it seems on the surface. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Peter, as always, it's um, brilliant to talk to you. And thank you so much for trying to explain what what initially seemed like quite a complicated um, subject, procedural justice, not knowing a huge amount about it. But actually, it seems to me that it comes down to, yeah, our processes and, and how we conduct ourselves, um, feelings and and really, actually, fundamentally, how you treat people. That's exactly right. So great to talk to you. Thank you so much. You too. Links relevant to this episode can be found in the pod notes below. If you enjoyed listening, we would love it if you would subscribe. Also rate, review and best of all, share this episode. Justice is produced for One Small Thing by the London Podcast Company. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.